My son did not feel like a girl or a woman and then went to look, why do I feel like a woman? My son felt uncomfortable in his body, in his feelings, socially, and went looking for an answer to that and found the answer that he was transgender, hooked onto that and took off running with it. I just, I think this is such an important point, right? In these, this particular cohort is, it isn't that they have ever, you know, organically potentially had this thought on their own. I mean, I can't obviously speak, speak for everyone, but I think Marie and I both feel like in our situation, what she just said was just so well put. It was an external source saying, and in my case, it was, or in our son's case, it was literally clicking on a link within a one Reddit forum that had been, you know, posted by someone else that brought him to another forum that was literally called Egg IRL, which stood for memes about trans people in denial, encouraging them to break out of their shell or their egg and basically admit to themselves and the world that they're transgender. And then I have plenty of, unfortunately, I was able to view and observe some of the conversations that were happening with within these forums and the amount of encouragement and celebration. It was extremely um, affirming in a way where I think for the first time my son found a group of people who he felt like he belonged. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. This week's episode is a little different. I have two guests and they are appearing anonymously. They are the mothers of sons who struggle with gender dysphoria. Now, there has, as you may know, been a lot of discussion over the last few years about girls experiencing gender identity issues and wanting to transition into males. There's even data that suggests that the rate of girls making these announcements has risen something like 4,000% in the last several years. And I'm keeping that vague because the data is still kind of murky, but you get the idea. There's been less attention paid to boys saying that they might identify as girls. But now we're seeing more of that, and that's what these mothers will be talking about today. Now, I want to say a couple of words about gender dysphoria. It's a term you might have been hearing more about lately. The clinical definition is that it's a feeling of discomfort or distress with the gender you were assigned at birth. In other words, your maleness or your femaleness. Not all transgender people, by definition, have gender dysphoria because there's no law that says being transgender has to come with acute distress with your body, although obviously that's very often the case. But gender dysphoria, which has any number of manifestations, is now seen by many therapists as a sign that a person is transgender. And that has led to a huge increase in the number of people, especially young people, being effectively classified or affirmed as transgender when, in fact, there might be other issues in play. I've talked about this on this show a number of times, starting with therapist Sasha Ayad last summer and more recently with Buck Angel, who's a transgender man himself who's concerned about this kind of approach. The women you're about to hear from are part of a growing coalition of parents who are trying to support their kids 
but are also extremely uncomfortable with a party line that, as they see it, operates from such an intense fear of appearing bigoted or transphobic that it pushes medical transition even in kids for whom the jury is still very much out when it comes to their identity. Now, I can tell you this. When I was approached about doing this segment, I was a little hesitant. And the reason is that as much as I am transparently on the side of those who are worried about the way this issue is being handled in much of the therapeutic community, and frankly, in a lot of the media, I did not want to have a one-sided conversation. I said that I would do the interview, but that I wanted to pair it with a conversation with a clinician who works in the affirmative care mode. And by that, we mean a therapeutic model that believes in taking children at their word when they say they're transgender. So I wanted to have someone on who would tell me what I might be missing, who would explain how I and these mothers are, in fact, missing some crucial details. Well, after contacting many clinicians with what I would call a respectful, even friendly invitation to come on the podcast and even answer just some basic questions, I have found none who are willing to come on. I am still looking, but in the meantime, I've decided to go ahead and post this particular conversation. Needless to say, if you are one such clinician and you're listening to this and would be willing to offer some counterpoints, please contact me. The women in this interview, who go by Jolene and Marie, are willing to participate in a group conversation with an expert who sees things differently. And that was, in fact, the idea all along, that I would talk to them, then I'd talk to someone else, and then we'd all talk together. And I'm still hoping that can happen. Okay, a few minor clarifications before we proceed. At one point, Marie makes a reference to anime. You probably know something about this, but in case not... This is a style of animation that originated in Japan that is loved by all kinds of people, but for some reason is especially popular among autistic and neurodiverse people. And from there has also been embraced by some corners of the trans community as a kind of calling card. There are a lot of anime-based memes out there that are important to kids who think a lot about gender. You're going to hear more about a connection between autism and gender dysphoria, but I just want to make sure people understand what anime refers to. A second thing, this is a minor fact check. At one point, Jolene refers to a psychological disorder she calls glass skeleton. She actually means the glass delusion, which was a psychiatric illness common in the Middle Ages, where people thought their skeletons were made of glass and could therefore easily shatter. King Charles VI of France was known to have suffered from this. We don't dwell on it, but in case you were going to go looking for it, it's the glass delusion. I'll leave it there for now. I've been talking long enough. I'll put links in the show notes to a few other things, including a new organization called Genspect. Both Jolene and Marie are part of this group, but they're not speaking for it. They're just telling their own stories. And here they are. Jolene and Marie, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, this is a little bit different than uh, a lot of the interviews I do on the show. Um, Both of you are here under pseudonyms. Uh, You're not using your real names. You're going to talk about uh, experiences that you're having with your children uh, in regard to... um, what's going on sort of more broadly in the culture around gender identity. You both have children who have uh, announced 
transgender identities. Uh, you're speaking anonymously. You don't want to reveal where you live. I know very roughly where you are. Um, but I think it's worth saying right up front that you're concerned about privacy, not because necessarily you fear your children being judged by bigoted people in the world, but because you fear retribution from uh, certain activists who might call you bigots. Is that, do I have that right? That's correct. Okay. Okay. Uh, we're going to get into to the sort of uh, layers of that, but um, why don't we just start off first with uh, Jolene? Why don't you you tell us your story? I will let you speak for yourself. So maybe you can start off by telling us um, just a little bit about your family um, as as kind of, um, it, it, and you can go into specifics if you'd like, but you can also keep it general. You like just tell us tell us kind of your story. Thank you, Megan. Once again, appreciate the opportunity to share our story. Um, two years ago, shortly, just a little bit longer than two years ago, our 15-year-old son um, asked us to talk with him, had something he wanted to share with us, and announced that he believed he was a transgender female and a lesbian. Uh, we were very surprised and alongside my son was our older daughter, who herself, uh, previously three years prior, uh, came out to us as polyromantic asexual. So she was happy to be there and help and support her brother with this announcement. And then within a moment, the initial information provided was that this came about after spending approximately a month's time within forums on Reddit. And our son was very pleased to share with us that he had created a meme in which he had posted that received the most karma he had ever received. And he was very proud of that. And our daughter informed us that we we should be using they, them pronouns. So that was the first day. And um, shortly thereafter, we sought out the support of a therapist and began to establish a weekly meeting with our family where our children were encouraged to share information. We were encouraged to share information behind closed doors. My husband and I were frankly just as befuddled and dismayed as you can imagine. Uh, this was not something that we had ever imagined. And um, we're just really quite unsure how this could be possible. <laughs> this was not a child who had ever seemed to be uncomfortable in his gender up to this point. And I want to hear about your son, what he was like as when he was younger, all of that kind of thing. But just so we understand, your your daughter was identifying as, what was that? Poly... Polyromantic asexual. Okay. And that had been going on for a couple of years prior? Right. And this was not something that really, you know, changed much of how she, you know, chose to live or relate to others. It didn't play any kind of a role. We just said, well, that's great. You know, you're young. Let's give you time to, you know, actually explore life and yourself. And, you know, thank you for telling us. It was, in my opinion, given the climate that I am observing as a parent in this day and age, it's super important for kids to, you know, describe themselves in some kind of an identifying way. Unfortunately, in my opinion, the internet 
puts us in a place. And these are the first generation of kids who've been given the responsibility of really holding the entire world in their pocket as far as information is concerned. And I think there's a real desire to label and identify in a certain lane. And so our perspective on our daughter was she's, you know, finding a way to fit in. Um, both of our children are very fine arts oriented. We weren't a real athletic family. So um, there were a lot of conversations and certainly a lot of other families and kids who were, you know, exploring these types of identities. So we just kind of sat back and, you know, expected it to organically grow and that she would mature and discover what that really meant for her. And, you know, we really didn't have much to say about it at the time. Okay. So tell us about your son. What kind of kid was he like uh, growing up? Um, A perfectionist. From day one, quite anxious, um, not incredibly extroverted, um, big reader. Most of his late childhood was spent either in a music studio, learned to play the bass and the drums and the piano. Um, we kind of channeled his interests the way he he inspired us the way he, you know, asked what he, he told us what he was interested in. And we did our best to support and, and guide him in a way that we felt was sort of following, you know, his true interests, but he was not really a typical uh, boy, if you will, in terms of the fact that he just didn't really enjoy some of the team sports, that whole path, that whole period sort of came and went pretty quickly. I remember very distinctly by age nine, Uh, him telling me that it was becoming more and more difficult on the playground to be, he wasn't being included or asked to participate in, you know, the recess pickup games, if you will. And it was generally football. And we had family friends who many of these young boys who were a little bit more quote unquote typical, and I hate to even use that label type language, but um, I found my, I think my son really struggled to mirror himself in his peers. Um, he was also very, very, very smart. Um, at the age of three, he would describe mechanical inventions to me that he had, you know, invented in his own mind. That, to be honest, I was barely able to follow. Sometimes, at such an in- a very complex thinker, um, only really satisfied with very complex things. And so, I just think he really struggled to find his place. By age nine or ten, he did. Um, find the most solace, I think, in reading, but he participated in Boy Scouts and, um, you know, I put the kids in dance and in theater. I mean, you know, we really, we had a lot of fun. We just explored things and, and encouraged them to really be themselves. I remember often saying, do you be you for you, you know, or that God made you perfect, however you want to put it. But I wanted them to just pursue what they were interested in. He definitely struggled to make friends. He was socially anxious and trying new things was always very difficult because it was easier not to fail than to try something new. So a lot of anxiety around relationships and the perfectionist nature that he held. What was his relationship like to masculinity in hindsight? How do you see that? You know, that's a really good question, Megan. Um, I don't, it's not something that I, I really ever thought about. I mean, my kids were very close in age. Um, you know, a playroom was just a menagerie of things. It was never really, in my opinion, I, I don't know that I ever thought about him in that way. I, he was just my son, you know, he was into what he was into. And I didn't ever 
take pause at any point that there was something not masculine about him. He loved to cook. He loved uh, music. He loved Dungeons and Dragons. He loved fantasy, science fiction. Um, you know, clearly he was more of what you and I might have called a quote unquote nerd in our day, if you will, more so in that lane. But I mean, never really had any reason to pause and even think about him in that way. So, and with both of your kids, did you, it sounds like your family was pretty, pretty progressive. There wasn't like a lot of talk about girls do this and boys do this. Like, would you have said that your daughter was a girly girl or notably not a girly girl? Like what was the kind of sense of gender construct just between the two of them or in your household? I mean, I I think it probably is, was unavoidable that to some extent in a family of four with two males and two females, there were certainly times where I probably focused a little bit more on my daughter's things and events and kinds of things. And my son, you know, we kind of divided and conquered, if you will, just from the standpoint of what made sense and what made life easier. But my daughter was very into makeup and a lot of that type. I mean, that was very big, you know, watching YouTube videos about makeup. I mean, that was kind of just the era that she grew up in as well. But um, I I would say that as far as like the things she was into, into it was probably more typically feminine. You know, this was always uh, often, you've mentioned this before. I've heard you refer to Disney princesses. I mean, this was the era, right? So we we certainly, I mean, my kids love to dress up. My mother-in-law made my kids, the most amazing superhero costumes. And I remember one Halloween, they went as the Incredibles. I mean, I suppose, you know, we always called them girl and boy, but other than there being any real intense focus on boys do this or girls do this, you know, outside of the fact that obviously team sports are separated by sex, you know, at that time, Boy Scouts was still just for boys. I mean, I suspect there were gendered things that I never even gave pause to, right? Didn't consider it in any way other than just, this is what we do. So when this announcement was made, it it sounds like it came totally out of the blue. Was there any kind of um, backstory offered to you? Were your kids saying, well, these were the things that you didn't notice. This is why we believe that this is true. Uh, that this is the right path forward? Like, what was the kind of explanation given to to you and your husband? Uh, Very little. The message was that there was uh, no room or space. And this was sort of led by my daughter more so than my son, who she herself had had two friends who um, identified as transgender and had already socially transitioned in school. And they just happened to be kids she had grown up in junior high with in that same group of kids she you know kind of bonded with when she made her own announcement of her sexuality so we knew already that there were if you will sort of you know perspectives that needed to be respected and treaded upon lightly and we certainly had no intention of you know making our child feel invalidated or wanting to you know create a situation where we had a tug of war, knowing that with teenagers, that was not the right word, you know, place to start. Um, but we knew enough to, to know that there were other things happening in the culture. And our child was, um, you know, not very forthcoming. The only explanation given was that I've, I've been depressed for a long time. And this is why I don't fit in. And, and was so that was news more to that- you? Yeah, I had no idea that he was struggling with depression. I mean, I certainly saw a somewhat surly 
you know, junior high boy who was struggling to find his place. And, you know, he had definitely made an effort to try to find his place. He did many different things throughout junior high, but they were all self-driven, kind of trying to fit in. And I just think this was a kid who really just couldn't mirror himself in his peers. Mm -hmm. I want to hear about what happened when you um, started seeing a therapist. Um, But before we do that, Marie, I want to have you jump in and tell your story kind of up until this point. And then maybe we can talk uh, together about what happened um, in terms of counseling and if you went to a gender clinic or whatever it was. So so Marie, uh, tell us your story. Yes, like Jolene, we are also a family of four. Um, I have an older daughter and a younger son. And my son is the one who identifies as uh, transgender. Um, we had a co- I had a very complicated pregnancy with him. Um, I went into preterm labor at 20 weeks. And I'm mentioning this because it will play into his explanations later to us. But I had to be on uh, muscle relaxers, a pump that relaxed everything in my uterus so he wouldn't come out. Um, So when he was born, he had muscular hypotonia. That means his muscles um, didn't really have a strong tone. Um, He met most of the general milestones, um, but he couldn't speak until he was like three and a half when we finally got him tested. And he got started in uh, the preschool program for children with disabilities. He, from the beginning, he seemed to be hyperactive. So at first they thought he had ADHD, uh, could not sit still, could not look the teacher in the eye, was constantly moving. But he, he himself put himself in a box in terms of gender stereotypes. He was very clear that he liked boy things. He liked wheels, trains. I mean, we were talking about obsession, like an obsession with anything that was mechanical, um, that was electrical, fascinated by uh, buttons that you could push and make sounds. So very much uh, his sister had a hundred Barbies probably, and he was only interested in the Barbies if he could destroy them. Uh, you know, <laughs> stick them in the toilet. Nothing or, wrong with that. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. So, you know, I mean, it's just very stereotypical. If I try to dress him in plaid shorts, he told me that those were girl shorts and he wasn't going to wear them. So as he started growing up, it was very clear that something was off. So a developmental pediatrician finally diagnosed him with Asperger's, which was the diagnosis given separate from autism until 2015. Okay. And uh, right. so he was high function and he said he's very bright. Uh, but, you know, right now, you know, he has these delays and he's not getting therapy. So once he gets all those therapies, um, you know, I think he's going to take off. So in elementary school, um, he went to public school and there was severe bullying and he would often respond aggressively to being bullied and um, you know, hit the kids or punch the kids. And he he had the, all the therapies that were available, speech, occupational, sensory therapies, because he had sensory processing disorder, um, PT, OT. And then uh, the bullying was so severe in the second grade that he begged to be homeschooled for third and fourth grade. So I, I'm a 
teacher by profession. Um, so I taught him at home. And he really did, that was his first positive interaction socially. He made friends with the homeschooling kids. Um, went back to public school. And this time, as it got closer to middle school, all of a sudden his giftedness started showing up. Um, and he was put in all gifted classes, uh, except for writing English. You know, he has um, dysgraphia, which is a learned disability of written expression. Uh, so he started kind of finding his footing, like, okay, I'm smart. The bullying continued, and I constantly had to go to the school and address those issues. He was a typical nerd boy, and, um, you know, honestly, they, he got called so many names. I mean, because he, he, he acts awkward. He, does, he looks like a regular kid, but he would act, you know, he, had, he was very inappropriate socially, um, you know, annoyed the girls. He loved girls. He would ask the teachers to marry him, ask little girls to kiss him and marry him, would hold their hand. Um, in the sixth grade, he was such a Don Juan with the girls that, uh, innocent, very innocent, but he had to wait in the office for his father to pick him up because he created such trouble in the car line with the girls. Like so, doing what kinds of things? Oh, for he example? would he he would pull their ponytail to get their attention. Uh, he would scoot really close to them and sit right next to them, not respecting personal space. Uh, I remember one time he was poking a little girl with a pencil. Another time, as a girl, have you ever been kissed before? And uh, I mean, he only, he didn't get in trouble because he he had an IEP, you know, individualized education plan because of the Aspergers. So. Um, but then he went on to middle school again. This time he got connected with a robotics club and he became very clear that that is where his giftedness was at. Um, in his spare time, he went with his dad to the gym and they lifted weights. He loved lifting weights. Um, he was not athletic. And I do want to make a connection here to his sister because you addressed this uh, with Jolene. Um, the roles were a little bit reversed. Our daughter was the athlete. Um, she was a soccer player she, and she was a swimmer. And um, we went to endless competitions, uh, you know, where she did sports. And he was a little nerdy kid on his DSI, you know, playing video games. But we did go to his robotics competitions too. He liked, he was very, very competitive and he liked to compete. We tried rec sports and that didn't last very long. He wasn't good at it. Um, and it was more of a, it was, it just wasn't a good experience for him. And Boy Scouts, uh, not Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts uh, stopped when they had their first camping trip and he had an absolute panic attack and an autism meltdown. And his father had to drive him back home because he was terrified of sleeping outdoors at night and the bugs and the insects. And he had a lot of phobias and things like that. Um, he went to high school and that is really where he hit his stride in a good way. He went to a magnet school for engineering and computer science and things like that. And he connected with a group of five or six boys who were all like-minded, probably most of them on the autism spectrum. And they became this group of kids that were together all the time. And it was a very positive thing for him. Um, he won a lot of competitions, uh, 
uh, state champion a couple years in a row and um, national championships, had great experiences. Uh, like he went to the Kentucky Derby as a guest. All the kids who were the champions went. Um, so he, he had very positive experiences. On the dark side of things, he had a lot of trauma um, in our family. Um, his sister had uh, an eating disorder when she was very young. It was extremely traumatic for the family. And again, like Jolene, it became this thing of mom and daughter, um, you know, we're dealing with the eating disorder and dad and son were over here, you know, trying to keep him away from the fallout of what that entailed, which was very traumatic. Was she, was your daughter, sorry to interrupt you, was your daughter hospitalized? How severe was the no. eating disorder? It, 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 she was not hospitalized. She had it when she was nine. And we did a program that had the families doing the refeeding at the home. Uh, and that what was what's so hard about it because um, she was, um, it, it, it was terrifying to her to have to eat. And she would scream and she would be rolling on the floor and she would be clawing at herself. And she would, I mean, it was, it was absolutely oh horrific. Yeah. I don't, I don't mean to, I truly do not mean this like in a spiritual way, but it was almost like seeing someone who's like possessed. I mean, she was like going yeah. absolutely crazy at the thought of having to eat. And I and, would have to sit. You go ahead. No, were you having to, I don't mean to dwell on this, but just so we are clear, were you having to like feed her with a feeding tube or no. force feed her? Okay. No, so we, didn't, we, didn't, her we didn't force feed, but it meant basically just like a stand by, stand down uh, for hours and hours and hours and hours while she screamed and ranted and raved. And I mentioned this because I will get back to this. There is a big connection in what I saw with the two cases of anorexia and the gender dysphoria. But I'll just wrap up on my son and then I'll let you ask questions. Um, when he was a junior, I nearly died from a catastrophic um, hemorrhagic stroke. And um, I didn't die, but uh, my son had to be woken up at two in the morning to come say goodbye to me in the hospital. And he thought his mom was going to die. I survived. I came home, um, had to do uh, a lot of therapy. He had to drive me, um, you know, to some of those uh, therapies when, uh, during, you know, when he was off from school. Uh, and my husband had to drive me because I couldn't drive for like 18 months. So our, our lives changed completely. Um, and he became extremely, extremely depressed. He was barely that same month. He had just turned 17 when this happened and he went into a deep depression and he started spending all of his time in his room alone. Um, and we believe that's maybe when he started going on the internet and looking for things. We knew that he was on the internet looking at psychology things. He told us his new, he didn't call it obsession, but basically his new obsession was learning about psychology, trying to figure himself out. Um, when he went to senior year, he seemed to have gotten over most of the darkness of the depression. He refused therapy, refused help, refused medication. Um, he became terrified at the thought of leaving high school. So was he planning to go to college? Was he filling out applications or just refusing to? 
Well, it's interesting. He had scholarship offers um, and he had uh, the opportunity to go to, you know, a lot of the engineering colleges, not necessarily Ivy League, but good schools because of all the awards that he had won and how highly he had scored on uh, testing, particularly testing related to the field that he wanted to be in, in engineering. But he became paralyzed literally, by the thought of growing up, of graduating and going to college. He was so afraid, he refused to complete any assignment that had to do with college, refused to fill out college applications. They had to make accommodations for him not to do um, English, honors English grade 12 assignments, which were all related to college, because he would not do it. Uh, he refused to walk in graduation, which broke my heart, but I told him his mental health was more important to me than him walking in graduation. Um, finally, as graduation time neared and he graduated and summer came, we basically said to him, you will not stay home playing video games 24-7. If you want to take a gap year or not do college, that's fine, but you're going to get a full-time job. And at that point, he decided that he would go to college. So he went to a, a tech school, a two-year school for one year, uh, which was fabulous for him. And then the, the following year, he transferred to a four-year university and commuted from home. And that's and kind was of Was he living the, with you? Sorry. Yes. Was he living with you when he was going to the first school? He was living with us all along. Uh, he did not want to live in the dorms. He, he wanted his privacy, he wanted his room, he wanted his environment, and he didn't want to be around loudness because of sensory processing disorder. Um, you know, he does not handle crowds or large groups or noise, and he knew what campus living was like. So um, I don't know if you want to pause here, because now we get into the transgender picture. Well, yeah, tell us how he came to this conclusion that he was transgender? When did he come to you? What was the scene like? So he started the four-year university and a few months into it, uh, we noticed that he was letting his hair grow out and he was wearing this uh, lanyards with all of these rainbows, um, buttons, you know, like LGBTQ symbols. And then we also noticed strange things in his room, like there were these um, anime stuffed animals, figurines. And that was very strange because he had never before been into anime. It wasn't something that was in his radar or level of interest. Um, and then he also started like wearing fussy socks, which wasn't super unusual because he he's both a sensory avoider, like noise and bright lights. Uh, but he's also a sensory seeker. When it comes to tactile things, he always mm -hmm. liked soft things and um, he liked, uh, you know, he was one of those kids, you know, you've seen those kids that walk in school with their hand against the wall, touching everything. Mm. And he was always touching people and touching things and feeling things. And so, I mean, he had learned as a teenager that that was not appropriate to touch people, you know, but he would always touch things. Right. And uh, so that wasn't that weird, but it was still, it's like, why are all these things showing up now when we had not seen them for several years? Uh, they had kind of gone underground. 
another thing that was interesting um, is that he always put on masks, not physical masks, but masks of pretending that he was somebody else. Uh, and uh, so he literally, when he was very little, he would do Donald Duck voices and talk like Donald Duck. And then when he was a teenager, he would dress up like he would wear a top hat and a cane. He literally would wear a monocle sometimes, monocle, mm -hmm. top hat and cane. So that was like this dressing up. Uh, he would wear like uh, Afro wigs. Uh, you know, it's very strange. Um, but it, we knew that it was mask. He's putting on a mask. He's, this is his next persona that he's pretending. When he was 19, uh, he came out to me and told me that he had gender dysphoria and that he felt like he was a woman trapped in a man's body. And my first reaction was, what does that mean? And he told me that he wanted to be a woman and that eventually, you know, he wanted to uh, change into a woman. And I asked him how long he had known. And he said he had been thinking about it for a long time. And I said, well, what does that mean? A long time. He said, well, like a couple of years. And, and, and then I said, what's the plan for the future? And he's like, well, if I could push a button right now and turn myself into a woman, I would. But it's a really scary thought and I'm really scared about it. So I asked him if he would agree to therapy. And he said, yes. And so I vetted three therapists uh, to find one that would be non-affirming before he went to talk to anyone. I mean, he was a young adult by now. Um, so he, this was all going to require buy-in on his part. So I think you said you wanted to talk about therapy a little bit later. So I don't know if you want to, you know. Yeah, well, I'm curious. Did you, you say you were looking for somebody who was non-affirming. Did you even know what that meant at that point? Like how much knowledge did you have of this whole realm? Well, I did what I always do when I'm faced with situations that I don't know. I go deep and I study everything that I can possibly find about it. So I did research and I found that there were kind of three tracks. And the one track was in a way, probably the religious track, uh, which is, you know, this is wrong and, you know, it, it's got to be stopped and changed. And, you know, I guess maybe right. a little bit, um, uh, you know, just non-accepting. And then the middle track is the wait and see approach. Uh, people who see it as a mental illness, who knows their underlying causes uh, to it and, um, and who work with a person to find, okay, why are you feeling this way? And then the third track was the affirmant track. So I was like, okay, I don't want either of the two extremes. I don't want the religious track. Um, you know, I don't want the affirmant track. I need to find someone who sees this as a mental illness. Right. Uh, and, and who's going to look for underlying causes. So I have friends in the uh, mental health community and also counselors who've worked with us through our daughter's, um, you know, eating disorder, which, you know, lasted pretty much all through her teenage years. Um, and they referred me to some people. And we offered actually to our son who he wanted out of the three people. They were all wait and see approach. Um, non-affirming, but they were not going to necessarily fight him on it. Um, and he chose a counselor who is a sexuality expert, but he absolutely is against 
anybody transitioning before they're at least past 25 and they're adults oh. who are mature, who know what they're doing. And so my son agreed to start seeing this therapist. Yeah, no, I just want to make sure everybody is clear. When we say gender affirming, that refers specifically to a, a school of thought that says whatever the the chi- the child or the teenager says he or she is, that is what it is. It's it's not like I think people might think gender affirming means that you are have like an affirming outlook. Yeah, the the, the other thing that I want to say about gender affirming is gender affirming always has a straight path towards medicalization. There's no, there's no other way to go with gender affirmation than the path towards medicalization. Um, so that's what, in my opinion, it just makes it so dangerous. Jolene, I want to talk about uh, um, what happened when you began therapy, and I want us, you both to sort of talk about your therapeutic journeys. But before you do that, Marie just spoke for a long time about her experience listening to her. I'm curious what what resonated with you, um, if there was anything that particularly jumped out that you related to. What are your reactions just sort of as you have sat here listening? My heart goes out to her. I can't imagine struggling that much with, you know, an issue with your daughter and then, you know, having this also be a part of your parenting journey. Um, I, I, <laughs> I think there were a few things that, I sort of related to in terms of, you know, there was a period where I remember my son did develop a, an eye tick and about the end of elementary school. And he claimed to have looked into a firework and that it was a result of an interaction that happened in a, on a summer day playing with fireworks. So I treated it as a physiological thing, but looking back now, I, imagine it had a lot more to do with anxiety and his sensitive nature. I think one of the things that um, comes to mind are two things. One, that my belief is that many people find themselves attracted to the idea of perhaps identifying as some something new or finding a new way to view yourself based on a real strong sense of self-loathing which is just so sad. And I I see that as my son is just a very self-deprecating person. You know, those people who are just constantly being negative about themselves. It's um, something that he definitely has always presented in the way he talks and, you know, views himself. But also the idea of kind of dressing differently. I definitely was always really excited that my son wanted to just look a little different. You know, we did a lot of performing arts and he always really enjoyed, played the bass and the drums and just always enjoyed watching what he put together. He liked to create his own outfits and loved hats and dressed up a little bit more than a typical kid, his age in this generation, um, much more artistic and creative. My son was diagnosed with ADHD in 2020 and his therapist has made it very clear to us that she sees him as someone you'd just describe as highly, highly sensitive um, and more of a compliant, people-pleasing kid. And she says that the reason he didn't share with us that he was struggling is he didn't want to burden us and that he didn't want us to feel bad about him feeling bad. So that compounded, I think, for many years, his elementary school experiences that he's shared tiny bits and pieces with us here and there. He's very close to the chest. And, you know, I don't really know what what he struggled with per se, but he clearly didn't feel like he wanted to tell us what he was struggling with. 
And she says it's because he didn't want to burden us. Okay. Is she saying he didn't want to burden you with the fact that he was transgender? Has she, no, did she immediately she, go to she, that? Or what are we talking about? No, at this she point didn't. As a matter of fact, okay. she, she's never really um, diagnosed him with anything to do with gender per se. Um, that hasn't been a big topic of conversation in their therapy. From what I understand, um, she maintains that this is a child trying to figure out who he is and exploring different ways of, you know, how he fits into the world. And that's been the predominant focus of the therapy. Okay. One of the reasons that we're here is because I think increasingly the tensions between parents and uh, a lot of gender clinicians, particularly a certain school of gender clinician and therapists, they are coming more out into the open. There is a kind of um, baseline tendency towards affirmative care. I think there's a combination of that just being kind of in the air uh, on, a, on the medical front and the way that certain corners of trans activism have really dominated a lot of the media discussion is I think parents for a long time have been afraid to talk openly about their resistance to certain models of therapy. I mean, that's certainly that's why the two of you are speaking mm-hmm. anonymously and um, pretty carefully. So Jolene, maybe you can say, you know, at, at what point did you start to feel like you were not on the same page as as the therapists or the kind of therapeutic community more broadly? Um, I guess I, I knew a lot of what the, I mentioned that my daughter had had a couple of friends who actually transitioned from junior high to high school. One was a female to male and the other was the alternative. And um, I she in that time period also had another friend who had presented um, to her parents that she believed she was trans boy. And um, it just so happened that the mother herself was dealing with a very severe heart health issue and had been diagnosed with breast cancer and was not faring well. And so the family basically said, well, we appreciate that you're struggling, but we can't address this right now at this very moment. And actually that child desisted within a short period of time. So I had also observed this in a way where I saw another child kind of present with this and then sort of, you know, move on and and kind of, it was in the past. So I was skeptical, just in my own neighborhood, by the way, I live in a subdivision, a typical suburban subdivision, I know four families who have experienced this. So I had reason to sort of try to see this as a broader kind of thing happening amongst young people and, and trying to stay a little bit high level. And so when we sought a therapist, I was extremely careful to pick somebody who I I knew would explore, you know, this from a little bit more subjective perspective. And I guess I was just really fortunate to find someone who was willing to do that. And I knew that the risk was there, that there were other models of care. I had reached out to a few other therapists who just didn't, you know, wouldn't discuss it in any other context. They made it very clear from the initial discussion that, you know, there was really no other way to treat this, but to just affirm the child. And I didn't feel like that made any sense for where we were and what I already knew. And those therapists, where were you finding them? Are they at like clinics affiliated with universities? I'm a little bit confused because when people talk about going to a gender clinic or then the child, uh, the child, the the child themselves going to get um, 
hormone, you know, hormone therapies or seeing a gender clinician just on their own, are they going to like an independent kind of um, outfit? Like what, what are these places? I guess is my question. And Marie, feel free to jump in if you know the answer as well. They're just standard therapists who are being, you know, available through your healthcare. I mean, it depends on what kind of insurance I suppose you have. But Mm -hmm. for me, it would be looking up a name just like you would look up a doctor because you need a specialist in anything. And the model out there is often, you know, a firm only. And and I think I, I myself tried to work with a therapist who I had uh, two appointments with who told me that I was basically unconditionally con- loving my son and that I was going about this the absolute wrong way. And she believed what she was telling me. And I just said, well, I just don't think this is a relationship we're going to be able to make work. And what she believed was that he should just transition now medically by taking hormones. That well, she believed what it would have been? I should affirm the identity and not question the background. And if that was the right protocol that you know was being recommended, that that's what I should follow. But I never quite got to that point in the process, at least as of right now, that's not where things stand. Okay. Our child now identifies, by the way, as non-binary. So even in our own household, we've seen a, a change in the identity, which just gives me more reason to question why we would immediately affirm when the evidence in my home states otherwise. And Marie, what about you? What uh, was your experience with therapy when you entered into that? Well, you know, I think that um, there is, particularly when it comes to children, but also with young adults, there has to be a uh, relationship that goes hand in hand between a therapist and medical providers. So typically what happens is for children, uh, the first person that most parents are going to go see is the pediatrician. And pediatricians, unfortunately, most of them are terrified because the American Academy of Pediatrics basically stands on an affirmative only model. And we already discussed what that means. And so the pediatrician is going to refer to a gender clinic if there is one in town, or they're going to refer it to therapists that are firm. So uh, parents, unless they educate themselves, are going to be tracked into uh, people who are going to say, yes, affirm this child as the gender they say they are. Um, for, for myself, um, we really did well with the therapist who had the weight you know, pause, put the pause button and uh, wait approach with our son probably saved him uh, for a year from going into uh, medicalization. However, the int- he was obsessed with the internet in all of these places, Discord and um, uh, Julian, what is the name of the other one? Discord and... Well, you name it, right? Reddit, Tumblr. Reddit, that's it. Reddit. Yeah. Reddit, Discord, YouTube, all of those... And he found out that he could just go to a doctor. He did not need his therapist's approval Mm -hmm. uh, who would have said no. Had he been consulted, he would have said, do not give him hormones. He does not want to engage in therapy. He had diagnosed depression, did not want to engage on dealing with that or medication for that, didn't want to address the trauma that he had suffered throughout his life, didn't want to address the autism issue. Um, 
everything he described about how he felt and why he thought he was a woman, everything was related to his autism, to his social um, awkwardness, social anxiety, not fitting in, um, the uh, way that his feelings relate to his body and the way his body connects to each other, that interoception, you know, which is how um, you know, your, your brain connects to the, the, the organs in your body, the senses in your body, and how you feel about it. All those things are related to autism. But he saw all those things to mean that he was a woman. And he told us he researched it on the internet and he found the answer on the internet. So for, for my son, it's not, and this is what frustrates me so much about the way therapy is going. My son did not feel like a girl or a woman and then went to look, why do I feel like a woman? My son felt uncomfortable in his body, in his feelings, socially, and went looking for an answer to that and found the answer that he was transgender, hooked onto that and took off running with it. I just, I think it's just such an important point, right? In these, this particular cohort is, it isn't that they have ever, you know, organically potentially had this thought on their own. I mean, I can't obviously speak, speak for everyone, but I think Marie and I both feel like in our situation, what she just said is just so well put. It was an external source saying, and in my case, it was, or in our son's case, it was literally clicking on a link within a one Reddit forum that had been, you know, posted by someone else that brought him to another forum that was literally called Egg IRL, which stood for memes about trans people in denial, encouraging them to break out of their shell or their egg and basically admit to themselves and the world that they're transgender. And then I have plenty of Unfortunately, I was able to view and observe some of the conversations that were happening with within these forums and the amount of encouragement and celebration. It was extremely um, affirming in a way where I think for the first time, my son found a group of people who he felt like he belonged. And were these mostly boys um, who were identifying as as girls or was it going both ways because you know we should say part of the reason that you two are here today is you're representing mothers of sons who are experiencing gender dysphoria we've had a lot of talk over the last couple of years about girls it would seem that that was kind of um more more typical than the other way around there have been a number of books but um people you know in your situation are starting to speak out more so these reddit forums for instance was it like boys and girls or did it just tend to be boys it, well based on what i was able to see in this one particular subreddit i mentioned it te- it tended to seem to be catering more towards a male who was considering himself as a more feminine or or, or seeking to feminize okay um i think it, it it you know these can be sliced and diced to the extent that you could find just about anything you want but i I know anyone who is curious, it's a click away. I mean, literally, I would say, click, you know, type into Google, am I trans? I mean, I think you'd be astounded where you go and what yeah. could possibly happen. I'd be 
a good experiment experiment for every parent of a 10-year-old. Marie, when your son was looking through this and relating to to these Reddit groups and so on, was he saying, was he actually expressing, I am on the autism spectrum and I am also uh, transgender or was it just, I am transgender? Oh, absolutely. It's just all about being transgender. He he doesn't want, I mean, he knows he's on the autism spectrum and uses it when it's convenient for him, but like to get away of some social situation. But uh, no, this is all about being trans. It was very frustrating, honestly, to his therapist and to us um, that he spent a year in therapy where all he wanted to talk about was being trans, the things he was finding on the internet, the the the, the, the information he was getting. And basically his therapist uh, would sit there debunking and saying, they just want your money. This is junk. Don't listen to that. But uh, a year after therapy, he was advised from one of these groups to go see a, a OBGYN in another state who wrote him a prescription for three medications, including shots to his stomach uh, to stop testosterone, a testosterone blocker to stop the production of testosterone and uh, estrogen and some other uh, pill. Um, and he started medicalizing. And honestly, it's so sad and frustrating because his therapist has told us he really, truly doesn't have gender dysphoria. This is another face. This is another mask that he's putting on. However, is the one mask that all these people, like Jolene says, are applauding him. It's intoxicating to be so uh, love-bombed and admired. Um, it has cost him so much. He had to drop out of his four-year school because he started failing classes. When he got into the trans thing, his entire world changed. He started not doing well in school. He went from being dean's list to nearly failing. Uh, he has cut off all of those amazing, amazing friendships that he had his whole life and friends that he had since high school, his group of engineers. Um, cut off everyone and anyone who does not call him by the girl name. And, it, you know, even the friends who could, would be willing to accept him the way he looks or the name or whatever, but he's changed. He do, he's not, he doesn't act like, the person he used to be. Everything is so fake and put on and this persona, it's like he's playing a role. So you're really talking to an actor in a role. You're not talking to your friend or to a child. And Is his community entirely online now? You're talking about him. He's being love bombed. He's part of this community. You're talking about an entirely online community. Is that right? Yes, 100% online. He has moved out because we basically, you know, we we let him, uh, you know, do the hair, the eyebrows, the shaving of his whole body. We let him do all those things in our home. Did not, um, you know, I mean, we didn't like it, but he was allowed to do all those things. But we told him the line is drawn at medicalization. You cannot take drugs, which we see them as drugs. They may be legal but they're drugs that harm your body and live in our home. And so, how old was he when he was prescribed these drugs by this OBGYN? He, he was late. Um, he was uh, 20, close to being 21. Okay. So okay. I, I'm thankful that having 
a non-affirming therapist bought him one year. Had he had an affirming therapist, he would have probably been on hormones now for over a year. And he's now been on hormones for about six months. And we see changes in his body. I mean, literally, he is this big guy that looks like a football player with a square jaw and a broad, you know, kind of looking face, very masculine, growing breasts and getting hips. And it's absolutely just heartbreaking. Jolene, where is your son uh, right now in this process? Well, I mentioned that this was at 15 when this announcement was made. And since that time, um, through various conversations, um, similar to Marie, one of the most early discoveries I made was that, you know, these hormones are being prescribed off label. So, you know, from the beginning, I just couldn't understand why we would you know, I'll be celebrating this approach. So um, we made it pretty clear from the beginning that we didn't understand why, you know, becoming a permanent medical patient would really be a satisfactory solution. And um, I think that did resonate with our child, with our son, because about six months after his original, you know, announcement that he was a transgender female, he said he was now identifying as non-binary. Um, okay. And, and what so, were the ages again? Sorry. How old so was he was when he made the announcement? 15 when he first announced okay. and then about, um, six to nine months thereafter. And again, as I said, we had family meetings every week where we would share information and sometimes it might be Tony Robbins. Other times it might be Brene Brown. Other times it would be a detransitioner or a transitioner or an endocrinologist. And you know, we really tried to share a lot of information and try to broaden the topic as a family. And I do think that that helped at least to put the pause button on, can we just try to be a kid for a little longer and not maybe need so clearly to be labeled? And so now we are two years since that original announcement. And since that time, um, and I mentioned earlier, my daughter has also been, um, you know, played a role in this. She herself, I guess you could call her a social justice warrior, but you know, she's a pretty typical young kid of her age and a very compassionate person. And so in some ways, our family dynamic has been very strained because it is, um, she's a bit of the pronoun police, if you will. Um, it's just kind of always there, this underlying tension. We're not we're encouraged to use a, a name that my son says he prefers. He says his his birth name is codes him as male and and frankly he has a very androgynous name so it's very perplexing to me but um you know as a mother i think what marie just said is just you know barely scratches the surface for imagine her her heart but you know it is really really distressing to watch you know your child feel and not be able to you know help them critically think through any of this um but in the case of my son now we're Recently in conversations about whether or not he who will turn 18 in September, but will be still a senior in high school. So a legal adult. Um, I don't believe at this time he will seek hormones, but he does know that all he has to do is walk into a clinic and informed consent would be available to him. Um, and I don't believe that that's a goal of his at the moment. His therapist has indicated that's still something he thinks about. Um, but in essence, at this point, uh, social transition has already really kind of taken place. Um, he 
as he would put it, presents as female as, you know, I, I think he is comfortable doing at this point. Um, but it feels very much about what the world perceives and not so much what it is that he thinks or feels. I, I think he's very unsure who he is as a person, but we are still trying our best to support him. And and so we, we do choose to try to use they, them pronouns. And um, as hard as it is for me, I I avoid the name as much as possible only because it, it just really feels like uh, it's a hard thing for me to do. I did I didn't teach him to write that name and I didn't give him that name and you know what my husband and I see it a little differently. He prefers to see it more of as a nickname, but you know the idea of dead naming is really it's difficult to to process as a parent and and understand you know, how that's a healthy choice. And that's a part of this model that I just really struggle with. The family is never considered in any of this, which is really wrong because you can't, you're not an island. This affects everyone who loves you and everyone in your past. And you're being asked to basically say, you know, I didn't raise a boy, I raised a them. And I didn't raise a them. I raised what I thought was a boy, right? So it's just, it's really disconcerting. It's like cognitive dissonance all the time. Yeah, the idea of the dead name, just in case listeners aren't familiar, that's the notion that if you use the name of the person that they were given at birth, associated with their previous gender identity, then that's like tantamount to an act of violence, really, psychological violence. Dead naming somebody is like considered one of the worst things you can do, uh, at least, you know, within the um, within the community of, of, of activists. You know, to that, you know, point, Jolene, you are in a really unique situation because your daughter is on board in a way that I think a lot of people, they don't experience this. They've got one kid going through this, but not necessarily like an in-house ally. Yeah, it's Uh, very interesting and very heartbreaking to some extent. Does she think that there are just a lot of transgender people in the world and they have not been able to come forward until now that there have always been, there's always just been a much higher ratio of this than, than we have acknowledged. Like what does she say when it's, it's suggested to her that this is a social contagion. This is something that, you know, the fact that there are five kids in a given classroom or school is not really um, something that should go unquestioned. (laughs) Well, couldn't we all agree on that, right? It's very fascinating that it's going unquestioned. Um, It's a great question. I actually had a conversation about that topic specifically with my daughter in the last three months. And she's now a college student and has gone on, you know, left home. And, you know, I'm starting to see just little glimpses of things that make me realize, you know, she's starting to see that maybe her home life wasn't quite so bad or, you know, I mean, starting to just mature basically. But I said to her and I used the analogy, which I think is fascinating that in the 16th century, there was something called glass skeleton disorder that was prevalent for almost 200 years. And, you know, we've known that the body was made of bones (laughs) since longer before that. Right. Um, But this was a a psychological disorder that you could say was something that certain people used as a coping mechanism for their distress or their pain. And I use that analogy for with my daughter. I said, you know, this was something that occurred at this time. No one dared question it. It, it so happened that one of the kings, I think it was King Louis the Fourteenth, maybe, actually had this disorder. So you didn't dare question that it could be real. And 
I used that analogy. I said, so something else is happening here. You can't possibly believe that we've had a 4,000% increase in children identifying as transgender in the UK health system. And, you know, there's a reason for me to give pause. And I told her, it's a challenge. I walk a middle line every day. You know, I, I want to affirm my child in the best way I can, but I want to do everything I can to put pause and give him as much time as possible to mature and perhaps start to critically think in a way that is more productive for how he might, you know, live his full life. And my daughter said, well, the right thing to do is to affirm him where he's at. And I said, okay, well, the problem is, of course, the next step and the next step could potentially harm him or not be good for his long-term health. And she said, Mom, I know plenty of people who identify as non-binary who don't take a medical path. I said, well, that's great. But, you know, the original story and the original request was HRT. So I I do appreciate the fear of that being coming, a, a, you know, an outcome that I recognize my child will choose if if that's what he decides you know, I'm not there yet. My heart just goes out to Marie. I, I know how difficult this is as a parent to try to walk this middle line. Like she said, there's a middle line. But in my daughter's case, she I used the example of an agoraphobic, agoraphobic right? I said, or an anorexic, for instance. You know, do we affirm the disorder as a self-diagnosed disorder and say, that's great, let's proceed with that as your identity? Or do we try to explore? And she said, well, at the beginning, you would just acknowledge that it was difficult for them to go outside. And and that's as far as she's willing to think about it. You know, she's only 19. So I don't think that... And, and by the way, keep in mind, it is unpopular in her group and her life where she spends her time to question this at all. Oh, there are social penalties for, for very much so, it. and she's yeah. extremely, extremely in alignment with that current wave of thinking. So I think yeah, even when ahead, she Mara. has doubts, yeah. she's likely to to question her own doubts, right? Because then she's she's presenting an unpopular perspective. Yes, I'd like to jump in here because I've had the experience with the anorexia, and that's why I mentioned it earlier. Um, I see so many similarities between both the anorexia and the gender dysphoria. And what is has been such a shock to me is that when a daughter had anorexia, literally every single member of the team, doctors, therapists, school, everyone was on board with helping this child regain her weight and, um, you know, uh, uh, helping her avoid the pitfalls of the eating disorder. Um, both are delusional, delusional thinking. Both are, uh, have a part of bo- uh, body dysmorphia. And yet, when my son has gender dysphoria, all of a sudden, medical doctors are giving her medication to change his body when deep down they know that is never going to be possible. Nobody agreed with my daughter, said, okay, here, let me give you some laxatives and prescribe you something to help you lose those weight. Yeah, let me do some liposuction on your 80-pound frame to take away the imaginary fat out of your thighs. Nobody, and still today, nobody would do that. But we are medicalizing a mental illness for 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 some and for others, just plain social contagion, going with this fad, and it is absolutely criminal. It's so interesting the anorexia comparison because I was talking to somebody 
a little bit ago, and it came up that anorexia is actually on the decline. I don't know if that's true. Um, maybe it's just kind of manifesting differently, but I think we're the three of us are probably all around the same age. I mean, it was that was sort of the thing, right? When we were growing up in the 80s, like if you were going to harm yourself, uh, that was the sort of the most common path. Do you, do either of you, and maybe Marie in particular, do you see less anorexia? I mean, you're you're a teacher also, and I know Jolene, you you are work in the mental health field, so I think you could probably both speak to this. What is the, the sort of role of anorexia in the culture these days among young people? Yeah, I would like to address that. Um, what's very interesting is that a lot of the kids um, who have um, this gender dysphoria um, also have a certain degree of eating disorder. A lot of, for example, the boys uh, restrict their eating. Uh, some outright have anorexia, but I want to address a very important issue. The eating disorder world, the professional eating disorder world, NIDA, um, the um, Eating Disorder Coalition, um, and other organizations such as those have embraced this transgender project agenda um, they have trans people in their um, boards. Um, they um, and when kids are going to clinics for eating disorder treatment, they are coming out of the clinic saying, "I'm transgender." They are therapists in these clinics who are putting in their heads, "Well, maybe you're transgender." So I think there is a very weird overlap right now that is happening between those two things. I don't know if necessarily eating disorders are going down uh, or if the trans thing is just masking what some of these kids are dealing with. Um, maybe their focus, it's, eating disorders are performative. You stop eating, you, uh, you know, purge, you throw up, you exercise compulsively. Um, and we're well, also praised in the beginning, right? Yeah. You're celebrated. Yes, but yes, 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 indeed. But when they start becoming emaciated socially, typically, then you start becoming, you're criticized, you know? So, and then now there's, of course, there's also forums and internet praising you like this. But the, 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 the interesting thing with, um, the gender dysphoria is that it's also performative, it's all about how you look. It's all about the, you know, the binding and the tucking and the shaving and the, you know, and the medication. And so maybe the reason that eating disorders are going down is because this is a new fad, but they're both performative. They're all about what you do to yourself and to your body. Yeah. I, I think one thing I heard that really, if I might raise up an answer to that question, Megan, is that it's my understanding that YouTube no longer allows sort of that transformation of one's body who do have anorexia or bulimia that there was at one point, if I'm not mistaken, uh, those folks who wanted to show their progression, you know, could upload videos onto YouTube and, and someone who, you know, maybe was also anorexic or maybe vulnerable to that particular disorder then could be encouraged and and watch someone else's progression. And I've heard it recommended more than once that, and I believe it was Kira Bell who said, if we could get YouTube to stop showing transition videos, that we would see a decrease in this. 
I have no idea if that has anything to do with the number of people with eating disorders, but I'm pretty sure YouTube banned that hmm. more that's, recently. I'd have to ask you to research and confirm that. But if I'm not mistaken, I don't think you can find anorexic videos like that on YouTube anymore. Pro Anna was mm-hmm. oh, what the name of that that so I don't think you can was, find them right. anymore. Um, and Kira Bell it, it is the uh, the young girl in the UK who successfully sued the Tapestock Clinic, which is the gender clinic associated with the National Health Service. Um, and I believe it was a judicial review of the institution versus an actual suit, yes, like the way it was correct. put forward. I, I don't correct. believe what we would consider like a lawsuit in the US. Yes, yes, I stand corrected there. But that, that was a big deal. Um, Very. And I think uh, probably precedent setting. Uh, we'll probably see, see more of that. And I actually wanted to make sure we touch on this. The the suicide threat component of this is huge. The idea that if you don't affirm the child is going to threaten suicide or commit suicide has been weaponized by a lot of the activists. Has this come up for you, Jolene? Has your daughter, for instance, said, if you don't get with the program, he's going to kill himself? Absolutely. And that was the justification she's used to, you know, sort of... I guess, continue to establish that there is a certain way to, you know, respond to this. And so anytime that we have, you know, basically not done what she (laughs) advocates for and what she thinks is the appropriate way, it it creates a lot of tension. I mean, it's, it's a challenge and she's a very compassionate person. And I think she believes that she has, you know, the right information. And I guess what I also wanted to add is that I think we are just at an unprecedented time in history. Uh, There's so many factors that are coming together in one space and time that are contributing to this. And I know you have amazing topics that you look at across the board in your professional podcast, Megan, and I know you've touched on a lot of them, but you know, uh, many of us in this situation, we are basically just collateral damage. And these are children. And it, it's just really, it's unprecedented the way that this is taking its role in our society. I mean, where else would a child be able to ask a school teacher or someone at school to hide something from their parents and it would be okay, right? If a child presents this identity at school, in a public school, it is very likely that whatever wish the child presents with, whether it's please change my name or please ensure I'm referred to as these pronouns, if the child says my parents won't be on board, it is okay for that to be proceeded with without parents' awareness. I I mean, can you think of another thing ever in the history of the world that we would not presume that parents have their children's best interest in mind? Well, it's really, it, really amazing. I mean, you know, it's literally like living in a science fiction novel. I mean, to have this happen in your life, it, it's incredibly crazy. It's like you walk into an alternative universe. Is it because there are actual rules and laws within, among school, school boards or within state legislatures? Like, what is making the teacher abide by this well, protocol? 
That's a big question. I mean, Marie, I'm sure you have some thoughts. I guess my first response would be, as you mentioned, we're all about the same age. So it is my understanding that many of these theories were really began to be taught in the mid 90s in university settings. And now we've reached a point historically where the theory is quoted enough from another theory and another theory that no one really even understands that it's all theory to begin with. And so evidence has been false, not falsified, but theoretical ideology is now sort of playing the role as foundational evidence. And nobody, of course, desires to dig that deep. But what I find fascinating is, let's say you read an article that says anti-trans legislation, right? Of course, that's the use of language right there. I mean, all of this is about the use of language. We're all Americans. We live in a capitalistic society. This is a political football and we we love our politics and we've politicized yet another thing but now it's children's lives i mean it's pretty uncanny right i just think there's just so many factors but this idea that this is the only way to look at this has permeated so much of society but i think those of us of a certain age were just really unaware that this was a message that was being taught on such a grand scale and if you like look at one of those articles about anti-trans legislation and just click on the journalist and i mean no disrespect to our journalist schools but i would tell to you, tell you that 90% of the time it, the child or the person i shouldn't say child forgive me the person who's doing the work is under 25 for sure So we have kind of a disconnect between is gender ideology trumped biology? And since when? Like, that's my question. Like, what? How? Like, when? The thing I don't understand, like your average seventh grade public school teacher, is he or she going to be somebody who went to Oberlin College and majored in gender studies or just got kind of hooked on this particular school of thought? Is it is it that simple or is it just this is just sort of more largely oh, in the I air? I think it's so much more nuanced than that. Yeah. I, go I, ahead, Marie. I can talk about the education. Just uh, one address before we go into education. The whole idea of uh, your child will commit suicide came out of a flawed study that has been p- splashed over the media all over the world, probably, uh, and applauded and see, OK, we have the proof. Shortly after that study came out, another study by Dr. D'Angelo, and if you want to, Megan, if you don't have it yet, I'd be glad to, um, you know, send that link to you on that study from SEGAM, um, the Society for Gender Evidence Medicine. Um, It was debunked. That study was basically torn apart for its flaws, uh, but the media would not pick it up. Uh, medical journals didn't want to pick it up. Um, and so the truth has been completely modeled. Nobody wants to hear that that particular study that was applauded was flawed. And that's what they've run with. Um, but the other thing is um, the issue of education is it's complicated. But what parents need to do if they find themselves in this situation if they need to go and find out what is board policy, because a lot of parents are finding that teachers are saying these things to their kids and that's affirming them the counselors. However, there's no board policy for them to do that. They can fight this. They can fight this. Unfortunately, parents are not really aware, um, you know, of the rights. In listening to this conversation, I'm struck for the first time that there 
might be a bigger gap between what a lot of these therapists are trying to do and a lot of what's happening on the internet. It's not so much the therapists against the parents. It's the parents and a lot of therapists against these online communities. Is that is that accurate? Like there, there's a real the, the kids are are really living in the online world so much that it's almost impossible to penetrate it. Yes, I mean I think it's both. It's on both fronts. I mean it's on the ground, and it's also online. I think what makes online so pervasive and and this really I'm going to open up this can of worms and it will be another a whole other. Um, uh, session, but um, this ki- the some of the online um, groups are actually called hypno porn that have hypnotic uh, elements to it, and these kids are listening to it for an hour. Um, I mean, we had a cult expert come to visit our parent group, and he took a look at some of those videos and said, "This is." hypnotic, I mean, hypnosis of the highest quality that I have come across. Um, this really acts like a cult. Um, and, and, you know, and it has hypnotic and do influence on these kids. So there is so much in this underground world of, um, you know, of the internet uh, from, the, besides just the applaud, the, the applause and the, uh, uh, the allure, the intoxication of being popular and love bomb. There's also this tracks that are given to kids to like fall asleep with it and and have, I mean, and some of the things that are saying is you are a woman, you're a woman and just wait, your hormones are coming. Wait for the surgery, it's coming. You know, you're going to have a blankety blank instead of, you know, your body parts. I mean, it is horrific. It is frightening. This is something bigger than anything that we've ever dealt with. I, I would just encourage you to, to investigate forced feminization. It's kind of the broader term for, you know, that would be a tool used in that process. And, you know, it's not uncommon if you were on TikTok to hear a young person today mention porn as a part of their trans identity or mention forced feminization if they were born male and they are proceeding to, you know, feminize. There is so much of this content that Marie is referring to and some of its books, some of its videos, some of its audio. I mean, it, it is absolutely accurate what she's saying and it is playing a huge role. You're the mothers of boys. You're talking about this very much from that perspective. Is there a reason you think that this has been talked about less in terms of boys? Girls have dominated this discussion. We have been told that the rates among girls with gender dysphoria is exponentially higher than boys. I think we're starting to talk about boys more. Why do you think that boys have been ignored in this equation? Well, for one thing, the boys are a later cohort. It is true that the numbers of girls were just explosive. Um, You know, I believe it's like 4,000% increase or something like that. And the boys have been a little bit later coming in the game, but the, the type of boy that is getting involved in this trance is a very particular type of boy. Um, 
a high percentage of them are either on the autism spectrum or they have ADHD. A hundred percent of them have social anxiety or social awkwardness. They tend to have anxious personalities. Um, many of them, upwards of 80%, are gifted kids um, with high IQs or at least above average IQs. Uh, these are their old nerds. A friend of ours wrote a piece called The Death of the Nerds. Uh, because truly, the nerds are the ones who are nerdy boys are the ones getting caught up in this. And sadly, I think the boys are catching up to the girls uh, in terms of the increase. But like I said, it, it, they're a little bit behind, but they're catching up to the girls. And historically, I believe the cohort that most of us would be more familiar with would be an adult male who would choose to transition at a later point in life. Um, so the girls were really just such a change in the landscape. So certainly, at least in that case, the rise got is getting some attention. Um, in my opinion, as it pertains to boys, you know, another thing you might think about as a parallel is, you know, what's the number of boys who get caught up in, you know, might, we may have said 10 years ago that there was a way to be recruited into a terrorist organization, or, you know, there's another group of internet uh, communities around something called incel. Yeah, I was going to say the incel don't even phenomenon. totally yeah. understand. But so you can imagine that there's this boy alone I mean, it's always that, right? Whoever is, it's that vulnerable point in their life. There's a perfect age when we, you know, find kids who are, you know, why? Because their body is changing because they don't, I mean, you know, it's not like puberty has changed. It's just somehow we've decided to medicalize it. But I do think you could go back to the internet. I know whether it's porn, whether it's, you know, we could call it toxic ma masculinity, but you know, these, there are very sensitive boys. And if you're growing up today and, you know, our current um, political system has done very little to address certain things that we all would consider toxic masculinity. And I think young boys who are sensitive and, and know they don't see themselves in some of those behaviors, are, they don't have good role models right now. There isn't anyone out there saying, hey, you can be a different kind of man. And let's face it, being any kind of man you know, we've done a lot of wonderful things for women, but I hope many of us still have good relationships with our fathers and, you know, our, you know, hopefully many of us in good marriages with good men. And it, it doesn't seem to be okay to say, you know what, all men are not bad. I mean, that's almost a hard thing to get across as a message. And I think if you're growing up as a young boy right now, we are completely oblivious to the messages we're sending young men. And what do your husbands say about this? I'll, I'll let this just maybe be my last question at this point. I mean, both of your kids have fathers in the household, presumably. What's what's it been like for for your husbands and for their relationships with your kids? Well, uh, very hard for my husband. It's just a different kind of heartbreak. Um, you know, he remembers all the things that he and our son did together because they were so attached and close to each other. Uh, so just absolute heartbreak. And um, it's a heartbreak for my son, too, because he wants to have a relationship with his dad, but he wants to be a daughter. And he can't be a daughter because he's not a daughter. <laughs> he's a son. You, It's pretty hard to watch your husband's heartbreak. My own husband's father was estranged from his family. My husband was seven when his dad died, and he was... Um, 
you know, there's no question that family dynamics play a role in how families get here, which is why I think if we could loop this back to therapy, which is sort of the underlying theme, I believe, of this particular podcast, you know, why aren't there better resources for families going through this? And what are the unique patterns and trends in these families where this takes place? Is it an older sister who might detract attention from a younger sibling? Is it you know, a parent who's, for whatever reason, made it clear they wished they would have had a daughter or son. I don't, you know, every story is a little different, but this is a metaphor for something bigger in many situations. And as it pertains to my own husband, you know, he had a difficult childhood. And I think he's the most heartbroken because he didn't have a father. And he had tried so hard to have a relationship with the son and felt like he had done most things right, knowing we all make mistakes as parents and none of us claim to be perfect. But to have this outcome was certainly completely unexpected. And he is struggling. But there is hope. You know, we have hope. We have heard the stories of the transitioners. We have heard the stories of regret. And I believe that my son will be one of those. And I just hope and pray that he's, he has little scars, not huge scars when he comes out of it. You know, my hope is like, okay, he's medicalized. Now I hope that he won't go through surgery. Um, I don't know where his head is right now. I don't, he doesn't have the ability to do that right now, but you know, how long is this phase that he's in going to last? You know, hormones change their brains and make it more difficult for them to think clearly and to process things clearly. It messes them up badly in so many ways. But, you know, I will hang on to hope. As we say in, in, in um, that, that saying, they said, doom spiro spiro, which means while I breathe, I hope, you know, and, and we'll just continue hoping. Well, Marie and Jolene, thank you both so much for taking all this time to talk about this. I know it's I know it's painful. I know it's complicated. Um, I know you're protective of of your families, um, but I but I really appreciate it, and I know a lot of listeners do too. Thank you for being willing to share our story. Thank you for having us. That was my conversation with two women going by the names Jolene and Marie. They are involved in a new organization called GenSpect, which is made of parents advocating for a wider range of treatments for gender-questioning kids. You can find it at genspect.org and also in the show notes along with various other links. I'd said at the top of the show that I've been trying to find a clinician who works in the affirmative care model to come on and respond to and hopefully broaden this conversation. As the episode was going into production, I finally did hear back from someone who's willing to talk. It always goes that way, doesn't it? I will record that conversation as soon as possible and bring it to you as soon as I can. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. If you appreciate the show, please consider supporting it on its Patreon page, patreon.com slash the unspeakable. This is a one woman enterprise and I'm telling you every contribution makes a big difference. There are lots of perks, including if you sign up at the $10 a month level or higher, $10 off your first purchase of Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. You can find it all in the Nuanced store on the show's website, theunspeakablepodcast.com. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi. 
I am Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? The sleepless nights, the constant worry, and the feelings of isolation. Recovery Centers of America wants you to know you're not alone. Addiction destroys families. But if you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your loved one can begin to recover. And so can your whole family. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with compassion and dignity by expert addiction professionals while recovering in a world-class facility. Family support services will give you knowledge, connection, and community so that you can begin to heal and recover as well. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. Recovery Centers of America accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services at no cost. Patients are admitted 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.